0: Galaxy 666, by Toro. Session 63. Welcome back, fellow travelers, to Galaxy 666, your faithful guide Tug here. We continue Chapter 18 much as we left it in Session 61, talking, and we don't proceed much further this time. We start off with everyone agreeing that the plot has thickened beyond its previous broth-like state and then Oski regales us with his story about frogs and cream, inspiring us to never give up. Then we dig into the issue of whether or not our heroes can trust the aliens. But first I'll just expand on the reference to the Sword of Democles. The story of Democles comes to us through the ancient Roman orator Cicero, or Cicero if you're a classicist. Democles was the name of a simpering servant to the court of Dionysius II a tyrant of Syracuse, Sicily, in the 4th century BC. Damocles proclaimed how fortunate Dionysius was to be surrounded by such wealth, power, and luxury, at which point Dionysius offered to switch places with Damocles and allow Damocles to sit upon his throne. Damocles accepted, but Dionysius arranged to have a sword suspended above the throne, hung by means of a single horsehair. Under the constant peril of the sword falling, of death, Democles finally begged Dionysius to exchange roles back to as they had been before. The story then provides the moral that, with great power, there is also looming great danger. Today we understand it to mean that a great peril hangs above us. It remains quite remarkable that our team, having never dealt with these aliens before, seem quite confident in identifying what the function is of each of the different rooms of the spaceship. The one they are in is clearly for meals and entertainment, and the alien technology is an obvious combination of primitive and advanced, though again we the reader are not privileged to learn what details led them to these conclusions. That seems like quite a bit of knowledge to have derived from the standpoint of the team. Of greatest curiosity to me is what looked primitive. Are there even non-living metal elements to the spaceship? Do they use a wooden sexton? The majority of Session 62 is consumed with discussion, of course on whether the aliens can be trusted or not, and how all men are a combination of noble virtue and base vice. If there is an underlying moral theme to this book, at least in Pell's opinion, it is that all men are a combination of saint and sinner. Pell has driven this home time and time again during his and his protagonist's diatribes. However, he has not used the story itself or even the aliens themselves to illustrate this point. For instance, Oski asks, Are we dealing with saints or savages? And Korzak responds, hardly saints. Really? What have the aliens done to our heroes to this point that would deny them sainthood? Using the freeze ray may be questionable, but having delved into the mind of these four buffoons, it is easy to think that either the aliens were going for a mercy kill, or just trying to spare we readers yet another op-ed column. But the aliens themselves have been assaulted, abused, and generally maligned. So who then is the sinner? We do gain more insight into the thought-transference properties of the aliens in this session. We hear from Ishkla that the thought-transference is regulated by the aliens so that they can see what they wish of the humans, but release only what they wish to be known to the humans. So now, assume you are confronting an alien, and you have control over what information you will pass to them. What do you pass? From a public relations perspective, you will pass them whatever you believe will result in the aliens taking an action that you wish them to take. In other words, you try to get them to want to do what you want them to do. The only issue is, as they are aliens, you have no idea what might motivate them. Or do you? A quick return to an earlier discussion on Maslow is in order. Humans are humans, as we mentioned before, because of their imagination. Man is a poor hunter in almost every regard, so picture yourself as a human, soon to be the first human, standing alone on a vast plain. You have been chasing a deer to capture and kill. The only problem now is that it has outrun you. Your eyes are not like the eagle or falcon, so you cannot see it. Your ears are not like the bat or rabbit, so you cannot hear it. Your nose is not like the dog, so you cannot smell it. Your touch is not like the spider, so you cannot feel the vibrations in the earth that it makes. And your taste is not like that of the serpent, so you can't sense its trail. So what do you do? What can you do? You make the greatest leap in the history of mankind. You imagine. You ask yourself the question, If I were that deer, where would I go? And you move on to a cool valley and find the deer, now too tired to run, in the thicket by the watering hole. When we became able to ask ourselves, If I were that, it opened up the door to the idea that we are not connected to the here and now. We were something beyond our senses. After all, who is asking that question? From there we began to imagine and ask ourselves, what if? What if I don't eat? What if I get married? What if I bet it all on the White Sox? What if that group gets into power? And then we build cities, have wars, and finally climb to the stars. I would argue any species that reaches the point of being immortal, of no longer being dependent on their birth planet or birth sun, in short, having become interstellar travelers, will share a lot in common with us humans including being bad natural hunters, having an imagination, and having that thing that recognizes itself as being more than just a collection of senses tied to the here and now. A soul. Thus we can expect Maslow's hierarchy of need to apply, beginning with food and shelter and moving up to the elements of self-actualization. We would anticipate the aliens to have a rudimentary plan to entice the humans, or threaten them, or befuddle them. I would finally argue it would have been easier for them to lie to the humans than to zap them with their freeze ray, but, again, they could see the vast inner workings of our heroes' brains, and maybe that was enough in and of itself to make them want to pull the trigger. Final point. The last line is a cracker, and certainly worthy of a t-shirt. Hmm, said Oski. He was very good with his hmms, was Oski. They conveyed far more meaning on most occasions than an articulated sentence would have done. Lionel has a history of this. Some other examples of writing like this, is pulled from Debbie Quigley's book Down the Badger Hole, R, Ooh, the psychiatrist's voice was loaded with meaning and interrogation. Or, Oh, said Gascoigne. The monosyllable was rich in meaning. And, Yes, said the professor. It was only a monosyllable, but it was packed with meaning. It scarcely seemed possible that one tiny sound could have had all that meaning jammed into it. How much more meaning will Pell jam into each word? To find out, we must continue through six, Six Six Six. Here ends Session 63.